Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the most sporadic podcast that you've ever subscribed to, and we try to keep them coming, but Finding Backcountry Podcast. Um, man, let's see the last, uh, last time South, you and I talked was, I don't know, phone, a phone, phone one. I, I haven't done a lot of in-person, so it's probably yeah. phone maybe a year ago or so. Seem. Yeah. Maybe even more than a year. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows anymore, right? I'm such a warp, man. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It's like the last several weeks have felt like, um, you know, you get to Friday and it feels like it should be Tuesday still. And then this week it was, it was Wednesday and I kept thinking it was Friday, yeah. you know, Thursday felt like Friday and finally Friday got there and was like, Oh man, been waiting all, all week for this. Yeah. When does that shift happen in life? Cause I remember, you know, into my twenties, it seemed like the weekend couldn't come fast enough. Right. You know? And yep. then when you're an adult, it's like, well, bam, it's, geez, where did the week go? But yeah, for me, it's always like, I, I start out the week with the, you know, an idea of what I want to get done during that week. And I, I suppose that's what makes everything feel like it's going by faster than it is because I never get anything done compared to what I think I'm going to get done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if you guys can't tell, this is uh it's my good friend, South Cox got him back on the podcast. We're actually, um, pretty unique here. We're actually in Riverton, Wyoming at the Kafaru headquarters. Snyder was nice enough to open the doors, let us uh, record a podcast here while we're kind of waiting on the Wyoming, sorry, bow hunters of Wyoming. Uh, what do they call it? Their annual convention their or banquet. Their banquet. Yeah. Um, yearly banquet that they do that's here in Riverton this year. So we all braved the weather, man. This has just been a, it's relentless this year. Like, been a wild winter all the way across the west i mean i you know it seems like i don't it hasn't been too terribly unusual where i'm at i mean we're getting probably a little more snow than normal we got a good really wet snow there a few days ago um but i mean it seems like the sierras in northern california is getting it the worst and california in general is kind of getting the that first wave of you know when those storms hit and blow across the country well they're over I don't know if you've seen any of the images on social media, but they've got, you know, houses that literally have as much snow on top of the house as the house is high <laughs> and, you know, walkways or, or like corridors getting to their homes, driveways where the snow's, you know, 10 feet tall on either side of the driveway. And Gosh. it's insane. Yeah. Well, you know, it, the winners, right. It's like this big conversation in the hunting world and, and, some years you feel like, oh, you know, people are getting, just trying to search for something to talk about. I don't know. But like this year, I think it's turning into one of those mm -hmm. winters, especially like you're saying, kind of this, the Northern, uh, you know, Utah's getting hammered yeah. along there, Northern, uh, 
you know, Northwest Wyoming, Northwest Wyoming, where I'm at, we're actually quite not, not mild. We've gotten more snow than we've probably normally get, but it's just not a ton. We just don't get a ton of snow up in that mm. Northwest basin, but everywhere else that's that, uh, uh, West, you know, kind of central West part of, uh, Southwest part of Wyoming is just getting hammered, uh, be the Southeast corner of Idaho getting hammered. Yeah. Um, Northern Utah is probably from what, you know, guys that are way more into it than me, Travis Hobbs and, uh, Robbie Denning have been, those two been diving in pretty hard. And from the sound of it, it's just that Northern Utah area is getting. Yeah. Too. I'm hoping that the deer, you know, in the winter range and stuff at lower ranges, lower elevations are, are doing all right, but I haven't really been keeping up with, you know, what's going on there. Just kind of been nose the grinding wheel. Yeah. So, yeah, we just, uh, we, we moved our shop, um, back to my house. I had bought a commercial building a couple of years, two and a half years ago. And, uh, we moved into that location and that was kind of the, the, per, the, the decision to buy that building was, uh, you know, kind of based on, I'd sold a property a number of years ago in Northern California and was carrying a note on that. And then, the um, so that payment was going to make the payment on my new building and so it's just kind of a transfer of investment from one to another and then uh, that went into default last year so um i was working 90 100 hour weeks all of last year and just you know seven days a week just grinding away and and i didn't really realize you know how much of a toll it was taken on me until i got out on my elk hunt and had you know 13 and a half days of hunting to kind of reflect back on what the year had been and how burned out I was. And I got home and I just told my wife, it's like, man, I can't do this anymore. I mean, I'm, I'll be 54 next month. And, and, uh, you know, I worked those kinds of hours when I was all the way through my twenties, thirties and, you know, good portion of my forties. And, uh, it's like, I, you know, not only it was it just taking too much of a toll on myself, it was, you know, kind of rough on the relationship as well. And, and then, uh, it just beating me up. So we, uh, sold my built and fortunately I was sweating it because at that point, you know, the economy was starting to collapse a bit and interest rates were going up. And I was wondering, you know, it's like, man, um, are we even going to be able to sell this thing? Right. With the interest rates climbing. And luckily we had it on the market for a week and we had, three offers on it so we were able to sell it relatively quickly and kind of in that sweet spot yeah yeah so got got uh moved back to my shop had put an addition on my shop at home and and uh so i've been since uh well really year and a half pretty much just been gr just hammered grinding but uh finally now done with that construction and you know back into bow building full-time now so um, you know, a lot fewer distractions and stress now. Cause you had last, I had heard you kind of on a podcast talk and maybe with Snyder, you were, you had hired one or two guys mm -hmm. you, and still plugging away with those guys and maybe even hired another guy recently. Yeah. Right? So we, well, we had, uh, I don't know, it was about a year back or so back. I'd hired another guy and, uh, I ended up laying him off at the end of January, but there's, uh, three of us still now yeah. that are, that are doing it full time. So. Yeah, it's still, you know, pretty decent sized shop for a traditional bow shop. Yeah. Most of them are just a, you know, one man show there. Anything, uh, anything different or new that, um, I know you had acquired a couple companies too that had some yeah. proprietary builds and stuff. Anything new with that or just yeah. kind of rolling with it? 
Um, so we've made some improvements to the, um, we bought uh, A&H bows and Dryad bows about two years ago now. And uh, so also that was a, you know, a lot of work getting um, all of their production stuff figured out and, and uh, brought over onto our CNC machine and I bought another CNC machine. And so we were, you know, we had a lot of time setting that up. So there was a, a ton of time that was spent you know, and R and D and, and just, you know, getting the, everything dialed in there that wasn't geared towards or spent towards production. So finally got that back, you know, online. And in, during those two years, I, um, I brought over some of that, um, ACS limb technology into the stalker line, which an ACS limb basically is, uh, you know, typical profile on a, on a limb is, is just flat. You know, obviously you have the curve of the limb, whether it be a longbow or recurve, but the actual shape of the limb itself in thickness is just maintains a, um, a two-dimensional plane. And, uh, the ACS limb, if you think about a tape measure and how stiff a tape measure is, you know, if you, if you extend out a tape measure, you can go out, you know, depending on the width of the tape measure, five to seven feet before the thing buckles out, you know, down. And if you think about that same piece of material, if that was flat without that concave profile, you know, you might get 18 inches before that thing started to sag. And uh, so you get a similar effect when you add that kind of that ACS or kind of that tape measure profile into a limb. So the, the bottom third of the limb is flat, just like a standard limb. And then the middle third transitions from flat to beginning into that concave profile. And then that last third of the limb is, uh, is concave in profile. And the way you get, the way you change draw weight or determine a draw weight um, on, a, on a bow build, when I'm building, I'm actually manufacturing them is by changing the thickness of the limb, the whole thickness. So you have like in the construction of a, um, a, a limb with clear, um, clear glass and veneers, then what you have is uh, clear fiberglass on both sides. And then um, immediately on the inside of that, you'll have a exotic wood veneer that's you know, pretty to look at. And then on the inside of that is your core material, which we use bamboo um, as our core material. And so we'll change up the thickness of our core material, and then that will change the draw weight, draw weight. of your bow. So with an ACS limb, because you're introducing that concave profile, you're making the limb stiffer for the same thickness. So in order to reduce, you know, what would be an increased draw weight, you make your limb thinner, thinner. and then that, so you have a lighter fat, you know, more responsive limb as a result of that. So you're lightening the mass weight of the limb. And then there's, you know, also just some of the profile of the limb will increase performance as well. But RI. <clears throat> Our, um, on our coyote model, which is a kind of our more popular model, we had a reflex deflex longbow limb. I think it's the same one that you're shooting on. You have a jackal, right? I got a, a one piece jackal. Okay. So if it's one piece, then it was a dingo. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a takedown. Isn't it a takedown? No, it's a one, it's a one piece. Okay. Huh? Well, in any it's case, a one of one. All right. <laughs> Sounds like. <laughs> yeah. So on. It's on, a longbow. Yeah. Change. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that will the longbow limb that we offered that was on our on our coyote or our jackal model prior to us bringing on this ACS limb. The ACS limbs 10 feet per second faster than our reflex deflex longbow limb, all things being equal. And it's actually even faster than our um, static recurve limb on the coyote model. Hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I was a, um, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to acquire those other two companies was to get used to that patent. And, uh, so it's made a big difference from a performance standpoint. Yeah. And you know, speed, it's ironic because on the compound side, you know, especially a guy like me, right. I've run a, I'll run an 80 pound bow mm -hmm. and 31 inch draw. And I can't build an arrow fast, heavy enough to sure. tame my bow down to where, you know, most guys wanted in that 280, 290 range. Right. And then on the, on the, uh, traditional side though, you know, speed is everything sure. really. Right. I mean, it, it's not, but it sure helps when you're, it's, it's hard to get, you know, a high performing trad bow. I mean, there's, and it's funny because a high performing trad bow is still, you know, maybe two thirds or, or less of the speed of a, you know, yeah. fast compound and more likely, you know, closer to half in some, in some instances. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, but that 10 feet per second or oh, whatever, yeah. huge, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the difference between the gap you're, you're looking at at 30 to 35, I'm guessing is substantial. Yeah. And know. then also you can, you know, also then shoot a lighter draw weight and get the same speed, away. you know? Yeah. So if you're struggling, to, you know, on your, to get as much performance as you can and you're, you're bumping your draw weight up, you're typically not going to shoot as accurately. Mm. And, uh, because you're not holding, you know, like compound, you're holding a fraction of what you do it. So all it is is the draw cycle you got to get through when you're drawing your bow and then the let off it's, you know, the difference between 80 pounds and 70 pounds at, at holding weight is very little, a couple yeah. pounds. Yeah. This way you don't have to overbow yourself as much. Right. Yep. yep. That's good. Mm -hmm. Where does the guy, where does the guy start South? Like just, you know, longbow recurve all your different models i mean just like where where do you point a guy that's just yeah so like a lot of guys i get it because of my compound background i think and and because i'm you know i, I think a lot more open-minded to you know from the, the traditional archery side of things um to to uh guys that shoot compounds because i have an extensive history of it myself i think people feel pretty comfortable approaching me as opposed to some other boyers that are a little more close-minded. A little more, close a little more elitist. That. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah it's, and I think a lot of attitudes are changing, you know, and uh, it's bad business practice for one, you know, I mean, well, just from a personal business standpoint, not to mention, you know, hunter recruitment and retention into, into traditional archery, you want to be open and receptive to well, you know, bringing people in. We're here at Snyder at uh, Kafaru and Snyder was kind of the poster child of, you know, he went hard, he was hardcore compound and then he switched over to trad and everyone, it almost seemed like the whole trad world was like celebrating like, yes, right. like uh -huh. we did it. Right. We got another one. And then he switches back and everyone's losing yeah. their freaking minds right. again. And it's like, what's the big deal? You know, let's just all be bow hunters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people feel like scorned lovers. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't lie. It was a big uh, boon to traditional archery when he came over and, and uh, definitely, you know, but I think it's important too to realize or to show people that it's okay to dabble in both. And it's not, you know, you don't have to be exclusive one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I have nowhere near the platform, but, um, yeah, same deal. Went, went down that road, shot a couple elk with it. And, uh, I think I got licked by mule deer enough that I was uh -huh. like, this is, <laughs> sounds crazy. This is they crazy. They can be humbling, yeah, man, I'm can, telling you. That's all they are. It's, it's all it is is humbling. Yeah. <laughs>
I'll tell you the amount of times that I've had a comp. Well, just, I mean, take my elk hunt from this last year. The amount of elk I could have easily killed with a compound, it would have been just ugly. I mean, I had so many opportunities, even with my stick bow that I managed to flub up. I mean, I literally over the course of 13 and a half days, emptied a quiver of arrows at elk and came away with a empty tag. And, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was a rough season for sure, but I, I had some great opportunities. It's just, you know, I had two shots at 27 yards specifically that, you know, I can recount, um, that I, I shot low on. And one of them, you know, was a, was a tough shot. It was that bull that Aaron ended up killing. He called it right by me and I had to, you know, split second to draw and shoot. And I just shot low. And then I had another one where I, um, yeah, I, I want, I'm going to tear up telling this story. <laughs> I had, uh, I was all the way, let's see, where did I start this hunt? Um, it was at the bottom of the Canyon, right. And, uh, walking up the Creek bottom early in the morning, there's a huge burn that went up above us. And, uh, we had seen, you know, a fair bit of elk in that burn the day before. So our plan was to hunt that burn in the morning. And, uh, my, um, my caller had uh, plantar fasciitis, it really bad, man. It was just really, really debilitating for him. It just flared up, you know, immediately before the trip. And he, you know, thought he could tough it out. And, and uh, he did really well for the first, you know, half of the hunt. But by the time we got towards the latter half, it was just kicking his butt. And uh, so um, I had a bull that was probably two-thirds or three-quarters the way to the top of the ridge that was bugling and I, uh, and we had a ton of blowdown to have to go over, you know, through this burn. And so I just, just decided, you know, look, um, come on up, you know, catch up when you can. I'm just going to haul ass and try to get, gain as much elevation. And cause he's up on this bench almost near the top. And I got all the way up near the top there and then the wind had changed and was, it was a pretty shaky wind. So then another bull popped off that was um, further up to my left with a better wind direction. So I went up after that bull and I, um, that one ended up working his way further back up and got back up into a little basin that was almost to the top of the ridge. And uh, at that point, I had heard another bull that was literally like on the top. So then I went all the way, you know how those things go, man. <laughs> so I ended up all the way at the top of the ridge and then uh, sat down. Of course, the, I couldn't find the bull when I got there. So I sat down and, and I, in the little bowl below me, there was, um, see there are two or three bowls. I can't remember for sure right now, but anyway, one of them kind of, one of them dropped into the bottom of the basin and then the other one kind of wandered off. They were, had been bedded in the open and there was no approach. It was just wide open for me to them, probably, you know, 250, 300 yards away. And so I just was sitting and watching them. And then the one bowl got up out of his bed, walked down to the bottom of that um, bowl. And then the other bowl got up, whenever got a drink and which this, I mean, it's funny what elk will do, the things they'll do what steps over this beautiful, you know, Coors light, you know, beautiful, clear water, you know, Rocky mountain water, they'd make beer from right. Or whatever. And you, know, you see on a commercial and then goes and drinks out of this nasty, muddy wallow. wallow. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I couldn't believe it. So then he got, he walks down another 50 yards or so into a little stand of pines and starts raking his antlers. And it's like, oh, I can't believe this, right? It's total gift. So I just drop off this ridge that I'm on and I just 
almost ran to him. And uh, I got right up and I'm like, same elevation as him. He's raking his, um, his antlers butt towards me. I'm like 30 yards from him. And uh, the wind <clears throat> is, uh, it's still relatively early in the morning. And normally you'd have a down, downward thermal, but it was kind of quartering towards him. So I didn't want to climb an elevation anymore, um, lest the, the thermals give me away. So um, I, I was trying to kind of sneak, um, sneak closer to him. And yet there was a branch that was sticking out of a, from a tree that was covering his vitals. And I, I wanted to get closer to him to, to get the, my, the trajectory of my arrow to clear better. But those thermals, I just was getting too nervous. He was going to pick me off. So I cut my, you know, I, I went up as high as I could um, to get a better shot angle, steep quartering at him. And then I had to squat down really low in order to shoot underneath that branch. And, uh, and I just got too concerned of my, you know, with my trajectory, my arrow clipping that branch aimed, you know, as high as I could. I felt like I could without hitting the branch, but it still shot low. Mm. And I uh, went under his brisket and, oh, dude, it How was far? 27, 27. Yeah. And I had a range finder. So I ch- had checked the, you know, the yardage there and, and, uh, it wasn't a giant bull. It was a nice six. Um, but yeah. And then to add insult to injury, the bull ended up running right down to the guy that was calling for him. Of course he's, you know, hundreds of yards down below me, below the mouth of the, the bowl that we were in, or I was in me and the bull. And then he ended up calling him in to like 20 yards and, uh, in the bull stop and was feeding. And, and I was just like, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. That's kind of way the rest of the, you know, that hunt went. I had multiple opportunities and, and, uh, had a great hunt, but one of those that with a compound that, you know, would have been, I had two, two, like three forty bulls that were fighting 45 yards in front of me, right at last light. And, uh, my, you know, my maximum effective yard yardage is about 40. So I needed to get a little bit closer and I kept, you know, they were totally preoccupied with what they were doing, locking up and then they were posturing. And, and at one point they were, they, when I first saw them, they were about 60 when I ran up on them, cause I heard them fighting. So I just took off running towards them. And when I first popped out into view, they were 60 yards fighting. And then they, uh, they disengaged and actually walked to 45 of me and then start fighting again. And I was like, Oh man, this is just too good. And they fought just tussled for five seconds or so. And then unlocked again, then walked back down the direction they had come. So then at that point I was trying to regain ground and they ended up winding me, you know, with the, the downhill thermals there, but it was, it was exhilarating. But again, another one of the situations had I had a compound, it yeah. would have been game over. Yeah, that that hunt, that Utah hunt where I took uh, that bull with your bow, um, Corey pulled, I think that was either the fourth or fifth. Man, it's been so long, I forget. But there was four or five, six point, we're talking six point bulls, uh-huh. like the one I killed, you know, 320, 330 oh, bulls, all within, you know, 30 yards or less on yeah. that hunt and just miss or you know picking me off moving and you know the you know the drill like you said i mean you know if i could have drawn back you know 30 seconds before like i would right. have with a compound it would have been he would have been smoked but yeah um yeah it's a whole nother level so um 
I sidetracked you. So guy comes to you that's maybe compound and oh, switching yeah, yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, did I go on a tangent? <laughs> no, that was perfect. <laughs> so uh, guys that are coming over of shooting a compound, I, I typically steer them towards my coyote model. Grip is a little slimmer, so kind of more in line with what they're accustomed to shooting with the compound typically. Less less angle back, less... Uh... Well, that I can con- do a lot of control on as far as... I, I, can, I can shape grips a lot. Um, but as far as actual, like if you're holding your bow and, and, uh, aiming it towards the target, it would be width of, of okay. the bow. So cro- in cross section and width, Yeah. but I can take the angle of, from the throat to the heel of the grip and change that. And then I can change the, you know, instead of sloping off at the left, I can make it a more defined edge on the left. Like a lot of guys are preferring now. And, and, uh, so there's a lot of things I can do with the grip beyond just what I offered as, as my kind of standard options. There. But just the overall, uh, the overall, what am I saying? Uh, contour of the kind of the general uh, makeup of it. It's slimmer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Helps guys that are getting into it that are new for not torquing the bow as much. I think, yeah, I think that, and then it also is just like, um, when you're shooting a compound, you know, of course the riser is metal, typically got a plastic grip on it. They can make those fairly small. So you're not holding onto a lot and a lot of stick bows, um, and it varies from, you know, one boyer to the next, but a lot of them can feel club-like to mm-hmm. somebody who's coming over for shooting a compound. So, yeah, you know, we've, we've got a, um, a G10 I-beam that we, uh, mill into the riser to stiffen it because wood, you know, obviously is not as strong as metal, but that G10 is super strong material. It's a um, high pressure, um, compressed fiberglass and and uh, um, epoxy composite that's uh, um, laminated up, and then we put a like a, um, a essentially a bar of that that we mold um, into the riser. And you can't see it because we mill it in from the target side of the riser and then cover that with laminations. Um, so it, it uh, doesn't look like it's got anything on the inside there, but it, uh, it adds to the stiffness of the riser. And longbow recurve. That comes down, I think, a lot to just personal preference. I mean, mm-hmm. when you go back and forth between like a typical longbow grip versus a recurve grip, um, and you think about it in the, um, the aspect of like a Howard Hill style longbow, um, kind of a suitcase style handle, those are much more challenging to shoot consistently. So, um, I typically will steer guys that are, um, just getting into it towards more of a defined pistol grip where it has a more of a locator grip, um, so that your hand slides into the grip, you know, more consistently from one shot to the next, more repeatable. And uh, then the limbs to me um, are less uh, um, consequential. You know, you got some of our, well, actually almost all of our, maybe even all of our bow models. Yeah, I think all of our takedown bow models, you can do either recurve either. or longbow limbs. Yeah. And you generally lose a little FPS on the longbow generally. Typically, yes. Yeah. Typically longbow limbs don't perform quite as well as recurve limbs with some exceptions. Um, we have that, that ACS limb, you know, is, is really fast, but, uh, you know, and that is in some case faster than our recurve limbs on the bow model or rivals it in others there. 
smoother to shoot the longbows a little bit um a little bit it's more of a steady force draw curve whereas a recurve will load up a little bit Stack earlier up. yeah and then that's what uh it'll load up earlier and then kind of the that uh force draw mellows out a little bit before it'll start to climb again as it kind of reaches the maximum draw length for the specific you know limb length there yeah. um but uh typically recurves are um higher performing than than longbows is a general statement and then the one that you probably deal with the most is what poundage to get and try to talk guys in and out of yeah sure yeah and i mainly it's talking guys down and draw weight um and and i was guilty of it myself when i you know i was shooting 80 pounds bought a you know 59 pound bow the first one that i bought and it's just like holy smokes <laughs> you know this is a lot yeah. and it's not all that much fun to shoot and then i dropped down close i'm Currently, I elk hunt right now with about a 50-pound bow, and that's at, you know. At your draw? Yeah, yeah at yeah. 27, 27 and a half inches. So a guy like you, you know, with a 31-inch draw length, you get a lot longer. And I think this is a really important thing for people to consider because most people have longer draw lengths than me. Um, the longer your power stroke, the longer that your arrow is getting pushed by the string, the more energy that's absorbing. So, you know, yourself with a 31 inch draw length compared to my 27 inch draw length. I, I don't know hard stats on this, but I would guess that for us to be shooting, you know, the same arrow weight and, and be um, developing the same amount of uh, kinetic energy, you would probably be shooting the low forties versus my 50 pounds, just based on that increased draw length there. So a lot of guys that are coming over from shooting um, a compound that want to go elk hunting, the natural inclination is to go, you know, I need to shoot more, you know, or as much draw weight as I can comfortably shoot. Where in reality, because of your longer draw length, you don't really need to be shooting that high of, you know, draw weight. I'm getting, you know, most of the time two holes on elk um, with a good cut to the point broadhead. And that's, you know, where... It, the really important part comes is a good sharp cut to the point broadhead, whether that be two or three blades. Yeah. Yeah. And, and putting it where you want it. Exactly. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so interesting. The parallels that I see with, you know, I work at a rifle long range rifle company. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost word for word. Like, you know, guy call in, you know, has been used to shooting his grandpa's 30 out six or everybody tells him that he needs a 300 win mag or whatever. And then you get down to, okay, well, how far are you trying to shoot something? Oh, 500 yards. Okay. Well, you know, what are you trying to shoot elk and deer? Okay. Well, hold on there, partner. Like, you know, these seven millimeter bullets or even the six, five sometimes for the right guy, right? Well, you know, less recoil, yeah. you're going to shoot it better. You're more likely to put it where you're trying to put it, you know, and, and not flinch and all right. the things. And the round's going to be plenty at 500 yards. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we rely on the ballistic coefficient of the bullets now that are way more efficient than they've ever been. And, you know, that kind of, to me, sounded like, you know, having a little longer draw length, you can scale back your poundage yeah. because you can rely on that extra, you know, power stroke you were saying. And so it's just, just interesting to. Yeah. And a lot of guys, these, you know, these guys with a traditional bow are having a hard, you know, when you get up there in that 31 inch plus draw length, they're having a hard time finding a stiff enough arrow that they can get long enough to accommodate their, their draw length for, you know, a stick bow. Is it normal for like me? I, my compound is 31, the, the bow draw, but, um, I probably only draw my 
longbow to 29 and a half, maybe 30. Am I shortened something or? Probably. I mean, it varies a lot depending on your shooting form. Um, Tom Clum, uh, you know, out of Denver there, he's a archery instructor and, and he actually, you know, most of the people who even shooting a stick bow for years that go to him and kind of, um, learn his method of shooting end up increasing their draw length by sometimes more than an inch. And I tell you, I, I should probably go down and spend some time with them. <laughs> I could use that extra power stroke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Uh, you guys going back and doing Colorado this year? Yeah. 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 Really looking forward to it. I've got a, a September that I'm, I'm not looking forward to <laughs> in the respect that it's going to be super stressful from a, a work standpoint. Um, I'm finally trying to cash in my points for Wyoming. Um, Cody Kellum and I are, are uh, splitting points and putting in for a you know, really good unit here in Wyoming. And according to Gohan's Mule odds deer, elk. for elk. elk. Yeah. Yeah. So the guys from born and raised outdoors there. So if, according to last year's odds, if there's no point creep, we should, we should have it. Um, and then, so I'll have, you know, the first nine days of, will be Colorado mule deer. The middle 10 days would be Wyoming elk. And then the last 10 days of September would be Colorado elk. So it would put me gone literally the whole month whole of month. September. Might be a wave at my wife as I drive by on the front range, you know. <laughs> well, I'll be praying for you in Wyoming because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, man. There's been a lot of uh, just stirring in the pot up mm -hmm. there, right? And I've sat in a couple of these meetings and the talk of the ninety ten, and you know, this is the year to burn your points. And uh -huh. like, I don't know, man. I, I. I hate to say this, well, you know, to your face, but I, I'd be surprised if any tag stays the same. I don't uh, know. I have no idea. But, yeah. Because it's just the 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 whole, you know, jump in, burn your point. You know, right. I don't know, man. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should have said something different on the uh, podcast. No, <laughs> I mean, reality is always better than fantasy. The at elk least herd it. is hurting this year right. in Wyoming. Uh -huh. Probably best to sit out a year. <laughs> well, as long as, you know, I mean, we're already past the draw deadline as far yeah, as putting true. in, so yeah yeah we don't have to worry too much about that <laughs> the uh it, to, to add to my already crazy busy september i've got you know the i've got a, a spot i used to bear hunt in california and it's really only good if you're it's a you know high high elevation backcountry spot and stock bear hunt and it's only good if the, the snowpack is like 120 percent of normal or better so it's been, I mean, I, I, the last time I hunted up there, I think was 2010. So it's been 13 years since, um, I mean, we probably had a good snowpack somewhere between here and there that, uh, that I missed that opportunity, but it's been, you get the drift that's been a long time since it's been good. And then this year should be off the hook, right? So I'm going to try to sneak in a four day hunt out there. And I got to, I haven't run that one by my wife yet. <laughs> That's a spring hunt. No, it's fall fall. Yeah. So what happens is you get a late snow melt up there, you know, with this high um, snowpack with a big snowpack and then come August, um, it opens a third week in August out there and, uh, you'll have a late green up. So you get a lot of green grass at that high elevation. The bears will be out there feeding and, and, uh, you know, on the green grass there. 
and just grazing. I mean, it looks like, you know, black cows out there or brown mm-hmm. if they're, you know, happen to be a chocolate face, but um, it can be really good. I mean, I've seen, you know, 10 bears, 11 bears, you know, a day at times up there just as a spot in stock and, and sometimes even more than that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it can be a phenomenal hunt. So cross my fingers. I haven't bear hunted in a long time up there. Um, but if I can pull that one off, it'll be a fun one to add on there. So just judging by the dates, um, not, not doing, uh, Nevada, no Nevada apps this year. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, I tell you, it's been, Nevada will be there. They should be getting good snow this year as well. I would imagine. Um, and, uh, it would be a, a really good year just from, you know, the, the green up and moisture content and all that. But, um, the last couple several times I've been up there, it's just been, it's been so overcrowded with hunters and then the deer numbers have been low and it really took a lot of the fun out of it. So, um, I'm giving it at least a rest, if not, you know, just writing it off. I'm not sure. Eventually someday I may try it again just to see, you know, if it's back online again and, and, uh, cause hunter pressure can fluctuate wildly. I've had other times where I've experienced yeah. You know, not as much as I had the last couple of times I've been up there, but still quite a bit of hunter pressure. And, uh, but the last time I went up, it was abysmal. I mean, it was like, I, I ended up going up instead of going opening weekend, which I've gone every year. I went up on day five of the season and, uh, it worked really well from cutting down on hunter pressure. But I mean, I, I was hardly seeing any deer. It was pretty disheartening. So. Yeah, I don't know that I'll do that do that one again, at least for, you know, quite a while. There. Well, you know, you always wonder when you're if you're in the good old days or where yeah. they are and I'm I'm afraid that I've got my first taste of, you know, experiencing an area that we kind of hit the tail end of the good old days there. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally I so I started hunting up there in the Oh, I can't late imagine. 90s <laughs> yeah. and we would see, you know, 170, 180 class bucks, um, regular, not regularly, but we'd see several of them, you know, and, and, uh, I, I had a buddy the first year up there that missed one that he thought would be pushing 200. I missed one that, uh, that would probably be, it was a typical four by four with, um, matching inlines. And, uh, it was probably a 180 class mainframe on them with good, long so he was he would have been into his 190s um with those inlines and then i you know it's like every year we were seeing really good bucks and that was up until probably i think 2005 or 6 was the last time i saw you know a buck that was just a jaw dropper and that was probably about a mid 180s to 190 class typical and then it dropped precipitously after that. And, uh, in, you know, it, about that time was when I, when it coincided, I, I started shooting a stick bow. So it still was a lot of fun for me. Cause all of a sudden now I was chasing one forties, you know, hey, and those, and, uh, those two by threes with terrible genetics. Yeah. You're just like, uh-huh. bring it on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, still a target rich environment there yeah. for a long time, but even then, you know, or even, you know, after that, it became where it was getting harder just to find you know, deer, let alone, you know, find a, you know, a buck that was north of 150 or 160. So, yeah, it seemed like that last year or two that we went in there, we would, we would find one 
mm-hmm. somewhere up in there, you know. And you but, almost feel guilty at that point, you know, yeah. you know, shooting them or you know, even harassing them. Yeah. So it's like the last bighorn sheep on the mountain, right? <laughs> it's like, but I got a tag. <laughs> so I figured, man, I'll just take the heat off them for a while and and uh, see what happens. You you got a really good leftover tag a couple of years ago, didn't you? You know, that's the thing. South is like, I at one point it was, you know, as a non-resident, you really had no chance of drawing those kind of tags mm-hmm. that I got. And then they came out with this first come first serve, and I'm. For better or worse, I have a job where I sit at a computer when I'm not out doing a shooting school or a trade yeah. show or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I could sit and kind of cherry pick that thing and and stole it, honestly, the first year. First go around and, you know, you know how things like that are. Yeah. 90, per, eight, maybe not that many, but 50, 60% of guys who would be interested didn't have a clue what, what it was or what right. was going on or they're not really taking it serious. and um stole that uh 231 tag down down in the prime you know mm-hmm. and it, and it was still it was on one of those bad years i can't remember what year but it, oh you know the last three that was, four that was the just, same year that i hunted up there that i basically yeah i hunted a day and a half and just like, like weren't this. you saying too like water where we had been seeing yeah. what yeah just it, yeah, was, it was just brutal right I had a seven mile round trip to get water <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like brutal yeah and it wasn't flat i bet no mm-hmm. um yeah and so i i stole that and kind of got you know hey you know and they take your points right nevada yeah. so they're smart enough you know i've said this before in the podcast colorado's dumb enough to let you get a second or a refund or a return mm-hmm. and they let you keep your points yeah nevada's a little smarter than that they make you they make you pay for it right um and so i just kind of zeroed out the last you know year and um was like i don't care i'll just keep grabbing these first yeah. come first serves because i i felt pretty confident not that tag necessarily but one of the half dozen, right. you know, in or around that area that I could grab, whether it was rifle or muzzleloader or archery. Well, then this year, now they've changed, they changed it. The very first year, it was the wild, wild west. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, multiple screens, uh-huh. dozens of logins. People were doing all sorts. There was people gaming it with like smarter than me, people like programming it. Uh-huh. So, well, then the net that ended after the first year and it was a little bit more straight up last year. And I still got lucky with that elk tag, that late uh, rifle bull tag that I oh, had. I didn't even hear about that one. Yeah. I mean, just dumb luck south. Like, got you know, a couple things fell into place. You know, when those things pop like that, you have to, you have to know the unit. Mm-hmm. Because this all happens in a, now it's in a split fraction of a second that you got to commit to put it in your cart, right? Because right. it's so competitive. And uh they only let you have one screen open and it only refreshes every 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so if you're on the front end or the back end of that refresh, yep. it's, you know, you're, yep. you don't even see half of them, right. honestly. Anyway, so I just right time, right place, saw the tag, knew the tag, knew the unit and just boom, got it. So went up and killed, you know, obviously with the rifle, but um, he went three and this is me scoring, but he went 361 with two yeah, bo- wow. both his thirds are only about five or six inches long broke off it's just a solid bull but then so this year though they made another change and it's hard for me to complain because you know you got a state like wyoming that's making all these these changes to the regs in favor of the residents mm-hmm. right right 
screw the non-residents. We're going to protect our resource and keep it in, in house, so yeah. to speak. Right. Where, whether it's 90, 10 split or more money to the non-residents or whatever. How, how are they, um, how are they doing that with, uh, in maintaining revenue? I don't know. I mean, what, Wyoming well, they, elk tags are insanely expensive. I mean, I'm paying sheep tag price, $1,300. Well, don't look at the recent price changes. Cause it's more than that. So for, like for next year, the special, yeah, I, I believe it's in effect. I'm not the guy that's up on hundred percent, but they're, they're proposing at least Jaden's over at the thing. He'll know we'll, okay. we'll hit him up for sure, but they're proposing it. If I understand it correct. And again, I should have talked to Jaden before this, but they're, it, they're changing the structure. You know how they have special regular. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it appears that the special elk license, if we just talk elk, is going to go to almost $2,000, okay? But they're not. it's not a special regular at the same time. It's a first draw and then a second draw. No so way. you're going to go into, this will be next year, obviously, because okay. this year's already done, but you'll go into like a, um, a the first special draw, $2,000, almost like Montana does it, where you have to draw... Not, not a requisite, like, like Montana, you have to draw the regular license and then you get into the second draw. That's the special tags, right? Different, but similar where they're going to have an early draw for the special. That's like $2,000 and then a second draw for the regular, whatever the allocation ends up being. That's now the regulars, like the 1300, I want to say, or something like that. Uh, So that's how they're changing the revenues. They're sticking it. Listen, they're, and I knew this was coming, right? As a business guy, you sit back and you think, and you hate to think this way with our precious elk and deer tags and all the, re, you know, this is just a hobby and a passion for a lot of us. But as a business, you're sitting there going, there's, there's an inelastic curve here where there's enough people that will literally pay double, mm-hmm. triple, yep. whatever, you know, and you just hate to say that, but yep. like, it's just, you know, like, yeah, I mean, when you can sell a, you know, a, a desert bighorn sheep hunt for 80 grand, right. You're going to be able to sell a $2,000 elk tag all, all day long and have hundreds of people paying the mm-hmm. fee to get in and use yep. their money for interest or whatever they do. Right. So anyway, that's, what's coming down the line and how they're fixing revenue. So, you know, the, again, back to the Nevada thing, just to wrap that up, it's like, they're, they're now, um, cause the last few years, if a resident had a tag and turned it back, it would just go into a big pool of resident and non-resident on that first come first serve. Right. It didn't matter which one you were or weren't. Now it stays same to same. So if a resident turns in a tag, only residents. And so oh, no kidding. Yeah, only residents can get it. And me as a non-resident will only see the non-resident turn backs. Oh, wow. So even though my gut tells me that more higher percentage of non-residents turn their tags back in the, in that kind of a state, right? Because. Mm-hmm. Well, like the, the unit that I deer hunted, it just went undersubscribed for residents. So that pool that would, would not even be available for non-residents because that's where, that's where I was consistently getting my tags from it, you well, know, I would assume there were some that were turned back in, I'm sure. But like you'd look at the draw results, but this these first come first serve are just the the ones fourteen days before the hunt opens. Okay, these are a different pool than okay. than you've your your uh, 
returns in the second draw will be just fine. If okay. if they've been spilling over, mm -hmm. they'll still be there. Um, this is like the ninth inning, you know, okay, fourth gotcha. quarter, yep. three yep. minutes left right before the hunt because what was happening is before the state had all these tags that would get turned back inside of 14 days before the hunt opened, and they didn't – the alternate list will take care of a guy if he turns the tag back – 15 days or, or right. more, I gotcha. it just gets, it just gets assigned and your card mm -hmm. gets charged and you don't have a choice because you selected alternate and boom, these are the inside 14 and those were just going to waste. And the problem was Nevada has a, uh, they allow guys to turn in the literal day before the hunt. And so picture these units like 231, 240, 242, the 11s, the 22s with these, mm -hmm. these governor's tag quality right. hunts yeah. and these out of staters mm -hmm. are sitting on max points and every single year they'll go with their outfitter and they'll draw and they'll go through the process of scouting and they'll come back to their guy especially on these poor moisture years and they'll come back and say dude there ain't anything bigger than a 190 in the unit this year because that's real i mean those yeah. like 240 units that are high desert type deals and so the guy walk in you know the, the outfitter walk in with their guy's tag the day before the hunt turn it back because they know they could draw it next year right right well, those tags were just disappearing huh. into nothing and they're getting no revenue right. for it or whatever. So mm -hmm. that's where the first come first serve uh, free for all comes from. And so, huh. so anyway, I, my gut tells me there's a higher percentage of non-residents that turn back tags because they're the guys that right. are hunting those monster bucks or bulls with yeah. outfitters, but the sheer number of tags, I'm sure more yeah. overall tags. So I'm guessing this year is going to be slim pickings as a non-resident mm -hmm. on there, but I got it while it was good, I guess. Yeah. So I can't complain, but I'll tell you, I, um, I cashed, I had, I can't remember 17 or 18 elk points and, uh, Nevada. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had been just banking and banking because, you know, just putting in as kind of an afterthought as part of my application process and had only tried once to actually burn them at one point. And I had a friend that had been, this is five, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, had hunted up there in the garbage for deer. And he was telling me, he's like, dude, I saw no kidding, 50, 350 or better bulls in the time that I was scouting up there. And, and he's having a hard time turning up a buck. And I'd always wanted to, you know, to kind of check out the garbage. It's kind of like the big brother to the rubies there. Right. So, um, eventually I kind of kept that in the back of my mind and it was only two, three years later, maybe three or four years later. Um, I decided I was going to try and cash my points in for elk and, and, uh, so, um, I put in and I drew without doing any research, like following up from that time period of when he had seen all those bulls to present time when I cashed in my points. So it was good three or four years that had gone by. What I didn't know was that they were over objective on their elk numbers there. And so they issued a bunch of elk tags, not cow tags, but elk tags. And so they went in their rifle season, just hammered all these good bulls over the course of several years. So I went in there and I had a hard time turning up a, a good bull. And I ended up, I ended up getting into a group of uh, either five or six bulls. And uh, they were in the timber kind of walking you know, through the timber as I got up on them and I found, you know, found the one bull I wanted to shoot. I actually had one come out at four, the biggest one come out at 45 yards and it was just beyond my 
comfortable effective shooting range. So I passed on them. And then I had the second biggest one I saw. And I, um, you know, as they're walking through the trees and, and I, I kind of, um, I'd seen them and then I was like, okay, that's what I want. And I was trying to sneak closer and looking at my feet and looking down, you know, trying to monitor the other eyeballs and all this. We'll make a long story short. He steps out. It was 35 yards, just pin, which is my point on. I pinwheeled him and I uh, got up on him and it was the wrong bull. <laughs> <laughs> so I shot the funkiest looking five point you ever seen on, you know, 17 or 18 elk points. I was just heartbroken. I mean, I was ecstatic. It was a super tough hunt and I got a bull. So I was totally excited. But when you could you could knock me over with a feather when I walked up on him. I was like, what the heck? You know, it was, it was a bit. They open that season opens August 15th. So it's hotter than Hades. You have the, like the literally the first 15 or 20 minutes of first light. And then the same at the end of the day. And it's the longest day in between those elk are hanging in the trees, you know, and it was a pretty boring hunt, to be honest with you, from, you know, the perspective of you, you and you're used to hunting mule deer like that and you can glass them up in their beds and, and, uh, but it, it was a tough hunt, but, uh, I did, you know, with a stick bow and an elk public land, you know, and considering the conditions, I felt pretty good about it, but still it was like, man, I just lost track of which elk was which and told myself don't look at the antlers yeah. focus on the spot and it's like the one time that you should have looked at the antlers uh-huh <laughs> what do you like hunting more elk or deer um i man i've been i've been really enjoying the elk hunting i mean it helps when you're hunting in jurassic park right <laughs> so i've been hunting a unit that's a hot pretty high um, draw, you know, high, uh, point draw unit. And I, I found a guy that I've been able to get landowner vouchers from the last several years. And, uh, so it's not like elk hunting. Um, it's like elk hunting when you're on a private ranch essentially, but it's public land. And, uh, it's been really, really fun. I mean, the elk are bugling their heads off and, and, uh, it's not a unit that there's giant bulls in per se. Um, but there, it's an, a unit where there's lots of elk and that's kind of, that's what you need with the stick bows, lots of opportunities. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, sometimes you'll get multiple opportunities in a day and, you know, lots of five and six point bulls running around. It's a good, a good unit for 300 inch bulls, which is, you know, for public land on in Colorado, you know, not taking into the account that it's a draw, you know, high draw unit. It's a, um, it's a really good you know, elk hunt. Um, if you're looking to burn a bunch of points for a 350 or something like that, it's probably not the unit you want to go. But well, where where is the unit to go? You yeah. know, in Colorado, like they just got such an anomaly with point creep mm -hmm. relative to quality, right? I right. Mean, yeah. I, um, I mean, it's funny too how kind of disconnected people can be with you know with the qual whether it be elk or deer with like you know that that don't hunt them on a regular basis, but their expectations are, I had a guy reach out to me and he's like, Hey, could you tell me a good unit in Wyoming for, I'm just looking for like a 350. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if I knew it, I would be there, you know? <laughs> so it's uh, the expectations people have. I mean, sometimes they get a little too, uh, you know, their expectations are, are, disproportionate with reality you know with magazines and the internet and you know instagram and all that but a 350 bull anywhere is a hell of a bull yeah 
Yeah, and few and far between. You yeah. know, you got to get on those premium type hunts that I was on. I feel like anymore to really like, you know, they're they can obviously turn up anywhere, but you know, if, if you're gonna have a fighting chance of actually finding one, but right. And deer's even. I I feel like the elk are doing just fine. Actually, you know, generally across the west, they mm-hmm. seem to be. You know, Utah seems to be picking up, killing some big bulls, and you know, Wyoming always has a few big bulls and whatever. But mule deer just—it's been a rough. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting on like a dozen points for mule deer for Wyoming too, and <clears throat> it's ridiculous. I mean, probably um, you know, in the running if I was rifle hunting, you know, but for probably way too many if I'm deer hunting. Uh, I'm sure I haven't looked at what draw odds are for Wyoming for, for deer, but I'm sure I've got excessive points and you just need to burn them to yeah, you've got start a, over. You've got enough for any of those uh, generals mm-hmm. I think that you want, but uh, where, like, let's say guy, traditional guy, just crossing over, just getting into it or, you know, coming from the rifle world or whatever. Um, I mean, I, hopefully this doesn't come across as a what unit question, but more of a, just a general few, two or three things that you might look for in a unit or in a state to send a guy, right. You know, where, where do you, where do you start applying or what, what's a, what's a, what, what are some qualities to look for in an area to apply for on your first traditional elk hunt or traditional deer hunt? Well, here's, here's the path that I would take if I was, and this is somewhat, the way that I went, not quite, but somewhat, um, is I would, you know, if I had a compound in my hand and was interested in dabbling into traditional archery and I hadn't made that decision like this year, I'm putting my wheels up and I'm not going to hunt a compound. I'm just going to hunt trad. What I would do is get a, like a whitetail hunt, um, that you could, uh, get, um, a buck tag and hopefully multiple doe tags. And I would say, I'm going to hunt my buck tag with my compound and I'm going to shoot all the does with my stick bow. Um, or, you know, get a hunt that you could do out of a ground blind, out of a tree stand, something where it's a little bit more controlled. Um, and you get some, you know, experience under your belt, go to, you know, some of these States that have antelope, maybe sure. Antelope would be a good mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Some, um, you know, somewhere where you have, uh, more opportunities, you know, a pig hunt, great idea, javelina hunt, something that, they don't see really well, um, something that's a little bit easier to dip your toe into and, and kind of gain some confidence and some experience at the same time. And then, um, you know, not that I don't want people to, you know, to just dive in head first, but as far as wanting to experience some success and look at it from a longevity standpoint, that's kind of the direction I think I would go is uh, doing something like that. And then if you are looking at an elk unit or a deer, you know, hunt, have realistic expectations, you know, don't, um, hold out for a bull, go for any elk. Yeah. Um, don't hold out for, don't go to a unit that has for mule deer that has, you know, high trophy quality, low deer numbers, go to a unit that has lots of deer, set your expectations low, set your expectations that I would just want to shoot a buck or I want to get some stocks look for country that has really broken up topography as opposed to something that's like rolling grassy hills with little topography. That's going to make it a lot tougher to get in, you know, close. 
Yeah, I think that last part is probably what I needed to hear because, you know, I picked up um, your longbow at a time where I was, I was probably the typical compound guy, right? I'd hunted hardcore 10 or whatever it was, 12 years with a compound, killed a couple smaller bucks. Maybe I can't remember ex exactly when, um, if I had killed some of those decent, like that, that buck in Nevada first or after, I think it was before that. Anyway, just kind of got myself in this situation where, you know, overall I felt like, okay, I'm graduated and I'm ready to start killing four points only or 150 plus or whatever, you yeah. know, 170 bucks or whatever I had in my head that, that year. Um, while simultaneously picking up a compound <laughs> or a trad bow. Yeah. Right. And it, it was, it's kind of two different, uh, levels of, I needed to re recalibrate back to saying, Hey man, like right. there's nothing wrong here with learning the ropes, um, and just going and stocking that two point yeah. right? or the three point or whatever. Um, and I, I feel like there's probably a few times where I, oh, you know, two point, even though I had a, a traditional bow now, like, yeah, but I've already killed a, you know, a pile of those. I don't need to. Sure. And, and I think that demoralized me enough, at yeah. least with mule deer, you know, <laughs> you know, the elk was easy. Cause I got in, like you're saying, I got in one of those hunts where Jurassic park, right. I right. mean, it was a premium limited draw and I went in there and, you know, was pretty confident that I could, you know, have success. And, you know, yeah. it's a lot easier when you got a bunch of bulls running by you at 20 yards with Corey behind you. But yeah, my mule deer, my transition to the stick bow coincided with the decline of that unit in Nevada that I'd been mule deer hunting in. So it made it a lot easier. You know, I wasn't distracted by big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more like, okay, that buck's in a good spot for a stock. Send it. You know, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to stock them. And I'll still, you know, to this day, you know, where I hunt in Colorado, there's some, there's some really nice bucks, but it's like, Hey, if there's a 140 inch buck that's bedded in a really good spot and there's a 180 inch buck that's bedded in a spot, that's going to be really low percentage. I'm going for the 140. Yeah. And it's just, it's, I got to take the, the stock opportunities that are going to present me with a higher percentage, you know, chance of success. Yeah. And it can be painful at times, but you know, sometimes it comes together and, and, uh, the big buck is in the good spot for a stock and, that happened a couple of years ago where it, uh, you know, I shot a really nice, my biggest buck with the stick bow to date. And, uh, it was one of those, I, <clears throat> I was stalking a group and there was seven bucks in there. And, uh, I told myself, you know, whichever buck is closest is getting it. And, uh, I came up over this knoll and they're spread out below me. And the second biggest buck was like 34, 33, 34 yards. So it was, you know, on the fringe of, kind of right near my point on, but kind of getting out there for me. And, uh, so I kind of pivoted, he was off to my right and I started to pivot to, to, uh, raise up on my knees to shoot him. And then I caught movement right down below me, 27 yards. It was the biggest buck. And, uh, it just worked out, you know, perfectly. And I was able to shoot him. Um, and so sometimes you, you're getting, you get lucky from a, a standpoint of, um, you know, not being picky, but just, things just worked out going and creating and being okay with yep. yeah however the cookie crumbles right yeah. mm -hmm. and i i mean you know we eat a ton of meat at our place and it's all pretty much all the red meat is uh all you know stuff that i shoot and uh so it's important for me to get a deer every year and it's less important that it you know is how many inches are on the antlers i mean you don't get me wrong you get two bucks standing side by side <laughs> and one's a dink and one's a giant i'm gonna shoot the giant of course you know, but, uh, 
I'm not going to. Unless you don't look at the antlers. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Don't let that happen again. Yeah. Gosh. Elk are just so big that like, if, you know, if you don't literally look, it just out of your peripheral, Mm -hmm. so to speak, they just all big. Like even a small six point is big. Right. You know, like you said, you're just trying to mentally tune that out anyway. You know, but yeah, you don't want to get your adrenaline going any harder than it is necessary. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the nice things about elk hunting as well is just like you put a mule deer in the freezer and you got you know sixty five pounds of boned out meat, you know roughly, and you put an elk in there and you got you know two hundred and twenty north, you know, and shoot that bull that I I got with Corey was three hundred and forty nine pounds of boned out meat. That thing was oh a giant bodied bull. I mean it was insane. We we weighed, you know, all the meat bags right there with the scale that I was using to load the llamas. Thankful and, for the llamas there. Yeah. <laughs> holy cow. We'd still be out there packing meat. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So yeah. well listen man, I feel like you 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 um yeah you're just so tied into the bow hunting. You've been in it so long and I'm just curious like maybe wrapping up here. Yeah, geez, we've been on plenty long. Um, I'm sure you got, we need to go set up and get tight in over there. But um, I don't know, man, like what what would be like your parting, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to, don't take this the wrong way. Like you're, you know, over the hill or anything, but you're just, you've, you've, you're seasoned, man. Like you've seen the transition over 20 or 30 years of hunting in general and bow hunting specifically. And just, I'm just curious kind of what you see as, what should, what should we be worried about on the next for the next generation or, you know, going forward as bow hunters or kind of that, you know, just that generic, like, you know, what do we need to do to keep this all together answer, or, you know, kind yeah. of what, what's the, what's your advice for, you know, the next generation coming up in or what they can look for. Boy, there's a lot of different ways you could go with that question. Um, you know, I think, uh, one of the biggest things is, is, uh, uh, is hunter recruitment, you know, getting young people interested in it. Um, I feel like at times that I don't do my part. Um, but then I look, you know, and maybe this is just self justification. Um, but I mean, everybody kind of has their own way, I guess, of reaching, you know, the, the audience, um, whether that be, you know, a new hunter, individual person being the new audience or whether that be inspiring current hunters or introducing them to hunting um the the video stuff that i've done over the last you know decade plus or whatever um i've tried to always do in a really tasteful manner and show you know kind of the whole experience of the hunt rather than just the glorification of notching the tag and uh um i think that you know productions like the full draw film tour. I think that, um, in general, like if you look back to when I was getting into it back in the eighties and, uh, you know, you look at the back of a VHS tape and it was all about how many kills that were on that <laughs> rather than focusing on the hunt itself. It was almost just like, a you know, a gallery of how many stacked up, you know, a- dead animals you could get. And, uh, so I think that the the direction, like uh, from the filming standpoint, is there's a lot more about the storytelling aspect of it, which I really, from a consumer standpoint myself and a creator standpoint, I really appreciate the direction that it's gone. Um, and I think it'll do really well. I'm um, do much better from you know uh, you know if a non-hunter were to 
stumble upon it on YouTube or whatever, that it makes a much um, more palatable presentation for somebody who may not understand, you know, what hunting is about or, or why somebody would want to sit behind a dead deer and take a picture of it. I mean, I was thinking about that, you know, on the drive up here, just how odd, you know, of a, you know, quote unquote sport it is that we have when you look at it from the perspective of somebody who is on the outside, who's never hunted before. And, uh, you know, when you look at it from the, the voter base, um, I moved to Colorado from California thinking I was escaping, you know, a lot of this left, you know, left wing liberal and realizing I went from the frying pan to the fire. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we've, we've lost some opportunities there in Colorado at the voting block. And, and, uh, so, you know, and by narrow margins. And, uh, so I think that, you know, keeping the non hunting public on our side as best we can is going to be important for opportunity for us for the future. Yeah. And it's, it's never been better than it is now again, for better or worse with technology. Cause on the one side, everything's in the public side. Now mm-hmm. on the flip side, we got guys like Joe Rogan yeah, and, and cam seems to be doing a pretty good job. And these, you know, Snyder mm-hmm. and these guys that are, you know, Joe, the Joe Rogan feels specifically is all these people who would have had nothing to do right. with this and yep. would have been right on the fence before, and could have been swayed either way. Sure. You know, and so. Or we're on the other side of the fence and yeah. he's brought him to the top of it. Yep. You know, yep. so. just saw a clip the other day, some comedian or something that he had on there. And he was just, he, he went out and shot with Cam or he was on talking to Rogan and then shot with Cam. And, and it was like, or no, he shot, he just shooting with Rogan and couldn't even pull the bow back, you uh-huh. know, and he was kind of like making jokes. And, and at the end he said, man, I have a whole different respect for yep. bow hunting. Right. And so anyway, that, that um potency that social media can have for better or for worse is real but man listen if it means anything um you know and i wouldn't i don't say this to anybody unless it was true like you and cam were literally the guys for me right so if that means anything if if only for one guy just know that like that was the inspiration to get into bow hunting right Right we were just rifle hunters growing up we didn't like bow hunting really um and so watching you guys do your thing you know and 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 not to inflate my own tires because this is nothing this is just i just record podcasts as an excuse to get to talk to my idols guys like (laughs) you right and whoever else is dumb enough to talk to me but um you know it's morphed into whatever i am Right. And that was, that was literally watching those v- VHSs of you and Cam when you were with Eastman's or whatever mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, and that was my inspiration. So, well, I, you know, it makes me proud to know that, that I had some influence over somebody else who's having more influence with, you know, another generation yet. So sure. it's, uh, I appreciate it. And, and I'm glad to see that, you know, you're carrying that on, carrying that torch and, and reaching out, reaching more people instead of just keeping all this, you know, information and, and, uh, you know, this reach that you have, it, you know, to yourself there. Yeah. Listen, it, it, this podcast is basically free. It costs me a few bucks to have an editor, you know, touch some stuff up every once in a while that I just pay out of pocket. I'm more than happy to do that if I feel like I can, I think, feel how you're sitting in your chair mm-hmm. in, you know, 20 years or whatever we are apart. Um, 
and just have that, Hey, you know, I listened to your podcast years ago and maybe yeah. somebody, you know, decides to do something way bigger than whatever I'm doing here. So yeah, right on. Anyway, thank you. Absolutely. Man, yeah. anytime. Thanks for the time and thanks for, uh, for the inspiration. So, okay. Should we get over to the deal? Righto. All right. Thanks. So. Yep. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.